What is up, everyone? We are back with another episode of Shaping the Culture. Now, like, let's just get to it. The whole secular sacred divide. There is no distinction in, in the scriptures. Some of us have trust issues with God. And right, some right. of us, yeah, it's like, does God really got us? engage the culture with the gospel that first has not engaged you no. like you know how people are like oh that's just who i am no, no. <laughs> keep, 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 keep. drop the mic drop drop the mic drop the mic shaping the code what is up everyone we are back with another episode of shaping the culture hope all is well with you guys listen this week we have an incredible guest with us. Uh, he is 100 times smarter than I am on every level. Uh, I got wind of him on Twitter. Some of my friends and family members are following him. And I think it was a tweet I saw. I liked it. I followed. And I've been blessed ever since. Um, he is extremely thoughtful, thought-provoking, graceful. Uh, he's a truth-teller. And I'm really delighted to have him on the podcast today, hear his perspective and take on things. He's the Associate Director of the Ministry Formation and uh, Adjunct Professor of Old Testament at Dallas Seminary. He's got his PhD in Bible Studies and Old Testament from Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, He also has his pharmacy degree from University of Michigan. He's a pastor and former oncology pharmacist. And very Asian. Listen, we've got none other than Sam Wan with us. Welcome to the show, brother. Thank you, Ebenezer. Just appreciate you having me on. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm excited for this conversation. You, uh, you have accomplished a lot of great things, and I'm excited to get into your story and uh, all the things that God has done in and through you. But for those who don't have a context for who you are, maybe this is their, their first introduction to you. Uh, give us a little bit of your background, your history, maybe your testimony a little bit so that we are familiar sure. with you a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So first of all, um, that introduction is uh, way too high. Um, it's I feel like a little awkward with that sort of intro. So let me just tell uh the folks who are joining in like a little bit about myself. So I am a second generation Korean immigrant, meaning, mm. um, but I, I'm, I'm in that gray because I was actually born in Seoul, which a lot of people don't realize. But because we came here when I was not even a year old, oh, wow. um, it I really just basically consider myself second generation. Yeah. I was naturalized as a U.S. citizen, so I did not. I was not born here, so my wow. citizenship is, um, you know, U.S. Yeah. I do have the blue passport, but okay. it's it came through naturalization through my parents. So okay. my parents came over from Korea in 1970, and they were very much a part of the wave of East Asian immigration mm-hmm. that was opened up by the Hart Seller Act in the mid 60s. Yeah. And so the U.S. Uh, did a major, major change in their immigration policy. So one of the things I'm very cognizant of is that mm-hmm. historically speaking, me being an American citizen is really kind of an accident of history. If I wow. were born even seven, eight years earlier, yeah. our family would have been considered illegal oh, wow. here, uh, quote unquote. So really, um, there's a whole history there. 
so we came over and it was primarily because my dad was given um, one of those uh, immigration visas that allowed him to come to the United States primarily to study. And so he was here to do his PhD in psychology. Um, he was already a professor in Korea, but wanted the Western uh, education and credentialing. So that's how we ended up here. But while my dad was at Michigan doing his PhD, the Lord had other plans. And so he had a major kind of revival, change of heart in his life. Because even though he was a believer, he was not what I would consider like deeply committed. He, he, he just, he, we went to church as long as I can remember. But it was during his time at Michigan in the late 70s that he got involved with the ministry that really just uh, awoke something in his heart. So he had this major, major life change. And so right after getting finishing his dissertation, he didn't even stay to walk the stage at Michigan. Wow. We moved to Dallas Seminary in 1980. Wow. And that's so my dad could just go right into his THM studies to become oh, wow. a pastor. So that's how we ended up Dallas. Um, and I've really kind of been a Dallasite ever since. Okay. Um, so when people ask me where I'm from, um, I was born in Korea, uh, grew up early childhood in Ann Arbor, Michigan, treasured that stage of my life. Mm -hmm. And then in uh, with uh, around fifth grade, fourth grade, we moved to Dallas. And that was uh, one of the what I would consider milestone moments in my life story, uh, because we went from a very um, open and uh, uh, kind of diverse, uh, almost utopian type of existence in Michigan, because we were living on the campus of the University of Michigan. We were surrounded by international students. So I grew up in a setting where it was normal. My right. next door neighbor was from Sudan, three wow. doors down, Saudi Arabia, four doors down from India. I had friends who were Native American. I had right. friends who were African American. I had friends who were from Japan, Korea. So I thought this was normal. Yeah. And uh, the school I went to, we, uh, you know, we, it was a public elementary in Ann Arbor, but we were always having festivals to recognize all the diverse cultures wow. that were part of this community. So I just thought this was how everyone had it. Moved to Dallas and wow, my life was just turned upside down to borrow a line from the Fresh Prince because <laughs> we moved into, um, because of my dad's student status, because of my mom's status uh, where she was working basically uh, kind of clerical jobs just to keep us afloat. We ended up in public subsidized, um, government subsidized housing in Dallas. And it was an incredibly segregated community. So the community I was in was, I would say, you know, 75, 80% African American. Um, good chunk of that was then Latino, Hispanic. And, um, and then of course, around our um, apartments, there were like blue collar, poor white families mixed in with black and Hispanic families. What there were no, none of were Asian families. So my brother and I showed up to school and we were the only Asian kids in the entire school, in the entire community. So my first few years in that setting were hard. There was just a lot of normal adolescent, you know, struggle with identity. Yes. Um, 
you know, kids were just didn't know what to make of us. Yeah. A lot of the, and this was also got to put it in context time-wise. We were late 70s, early 80s. So right. people didn't even know what Korea was. Like they were constantly asking me, are you Chinese, Japanese? And I'd be like, oh, I'm Korean. And they go, where is that, China or Japan? I'm like, <laughs> no, it's a, it's a country. Yeah. And, and, you know, like most of the kids I'm hanging around, they didn't watch MASH. They didn't, right. so they didn't put Korean War together. So they're mostly thinking, like, are you Chinese or Japanese or are you Vietnamese? Because I guess the Vietnam War was still fresh on our minds. So there was a lot of um, just culturally feeling kind of out of place that I I went through those years. But it really evolved into then becoming a part of that community. And so um, came to just fall in love with it, Um, made some great friends and um, So historically, what was significant about that chapter of my life was anyone who knows a little bit about North Texas and Dallas, that time period, we were on the very tail end of forced desegregation. So this was actually a very historically significant aspect of my story. So the schools I was attending in the Dallas Independent School District were forced desegregation schools, meaning they were busing African-American students in from far off neighborhoods in order to make sure all the schools in the district were close to 50-50 white, black. And so you were seeing a lot of these social dynamics that were completely new to me. And and I started to realize something was going on. Um, It was weird as as a sixth grader, even as a seventh grader, I'm starting to realize, man, something's not quite fair about all this because I have friends who have to wake up at 530 in the morning to catch the bus because the bus ride in was like an hour. And then I had white friends who were like walking to school. So I'm just like, why are y'all coming from that far away? Like, aren't there schools down there? They go, yeah, but we can't go to those schools because there are too many black people there. And so I'm just, you know, this is all new to me and I'm, I'm starting to understand. And as I grow older, some of the some of the things that are going on just, in, you know, about society systemically, yeah. I'm starting to pick up on. Um, so that was very formational for me. Yeah. And uh, this is the, also the period of my life where I become a Christian, because even though I've attended church all my life, I was more, I was one of those kids who really enjoyed church, by the way. I, yeah. uh, we would go to Sunday school, VBS and stuff, and I always wanted to participate. I loved being the kid who could raise his hand and, and answer the teacher's questions. Yeah. So I, I wanted to read the Bible. It wasn't maybe not the most spiritual, it was more just about me being like, I just want to know the answer. So I, yeah. I would do the homework that they gave us at church, yeah. things like that. And so... I, I became a Christian um, in my seventh grade year at a, a youth event at my church. Um, the other thing to know about me is I grew up in the Korean immigrant church. Mm. So what I think that's important to understand is that we were incredibly uh, close in terms of understanding all the doctrinal kind of frameworks of the evangelical church in America. But we did not fit in culturally Mm. with the white evangelical culture. And so I was very much uh, growing up kind of hearing the same uh, kind of theological uh, teachings as you would probably in like a Baptist or uh, in an evangelical setting. 
but our, our church culture was just so different because it was an immigrant church. The church was so much more to us than mm-hmm. simply a religious institution. It was a community hub. Yes. And I just learned to, that was kind of my connection to my Koreanness yes. without realizing it because yeah. Monday through Friday, I'm, I'm just steeped in this culture where it's mostly African American and Hispanic. And so I'm starting to buy into that a little bit and really enjoy aspects of that culture. You know, I back in the early eight, I was part of like a a breakdancing crew in our neighborhood. I I was super into hip hop very early on. Um, So before it went mainstream, I was, you know, alongside my friends, you know, we're going and looking for kind of bootleg tapes and records of of like Grandmaster Flash and things like that. So that's, I've got that, but I've also in like, you know, honors classes at the school. So during classes, I'm kind of more among like the more middle class white and upper class, like black and Hispanic students. So I'm seeing that. And then finally on Friday nights and Sundays, I'm at the church. And so now I'm back in my Korean kind of context. Mm. So I would say all the way up through high school, I was really never really fully comfortable with what my cultural identity was because it was so fluid. I Mm. I became a chameleon. It was Mm. just easier to get, you know, get along by just kind of fitting in. So whether that was in my apartment complex in that community, at school or at church. So those were kind of the three general spheres of my cultural identities. Yeah. Wow. As as you're talking, I can't help but chuckle, you know, feel deeply. I resonate on so many levels, you know, being mm-hmm. second gen Ethiopian. Um, yeah. You know, I grew up in the suburbs, you know, in our community, you know, to, to live in the suburbs mean safer. You know, you have mm-hmm. a better shot at education and, you know, college. Yeah. You have, you know, um, all of these benefits that come with being in the suburbs. And so. You know, I wasn't around a predominantly African-American Hispanic community, but it was weird because <laughs> I felt like I, I didn't know my identity. I really thought I was black. You know, I was ashamed mm-hmm. to be sure, Ethiopian sure. for a long time. And mm-hmm. I knew I wasn't white, Anglo, like it was very clear. And so the right. next thing that made sense in my context is to adopt African-American culture because Nobody mm-hmm. really in my community understood what it meant to be Ethiopian or what is an Ethiopian or African, you know, right. you know, right. growing up, there's a lot of jokes and things of that nature. And so, sure. um, but to your point, the, 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 the time I had to be Ethiopian was at church Friday nights and mm. Sunday mornings. And that's what yeah. kept me rooted and grounded was my church community. Mm-hmm. As you're talking, I'm thinking about my own journey. And I know for me, for a very long time, I struggled with my identity. I struggled with figuring out who I was, where I belonged, you know. Um, I actually didn't enjoy Ethiopian food. I think part of it was because (laughs) I grew up with it all the time, but I had it all the time. But it wasn't until, like, later on in college where I found a new appreciation for my my, my food, my culture, and Mm -hmm. things of that nature. And so I I guess one thing I wanted to ask is, you know, you're in multiple spheres of influences, different Mm -hmm. pockets of ethnicity and culture, and you're constantly having to navigate these spaces. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you struggle with identity crisis? And if so, what, what kind of, what was the catalyst or what catalyzed you into getting comfortable in your own skin? 
Sure. No, that's a great question. So when when we were towards uh, the end of high school, yeah. my family ended up moving because it was uh, closer to our church, which was in the suburbs. So I ended up moving out to a suburb in Dallas of Dallas, where it, I would say it was very much John Hughes. If you get that reference, it was kind of Breakfast Club, um, Sixteen Candles. 80s teen culture as in as you see it in pop culture that was my new high school um, it was predominantly white yeah. the only people of color in the school were largely assimilated so there were a few black kids but they were mostly suburban kids so it would be black kids but they're wearing like motley crew shirts yeah. and you know listening to heavy metal yeah. um there were a little a few more asians but generally more southeast asians so vietnamese yeah. and Hmong. um uh, there were a couple of koreans but we tended to really just want to assimilate so this was mm -hmm. 80s context so we had not i did not have this healthy sense mm. of korean asian identity yet mm. Uh, because at that time, we were just still so far in the margins that it didn't really make sense to assert that and to embrace that. So I generally kind of chameleon mode again, and I just yeah. kind of fit in with the white kids and the middle class in the suburbs. Yeah. And I still remember to this day, one time with some friends, my junior or senior year, just and, and we were hanging out. And they were kind of making fun of these Vietnamese kids who are recent immigrants. And then they kind of saw me and realized, oh, and, and it was awkward because I'm Asian too. So then they quickly went, oh, but Sam, you're not like one of them. You're like one of us. And so I, at that time, I took that as a good thing. I was like, oh, phew. I passed the test. Wow. I'm, I'm, I'm cool. I'm like, I'm, wow. I'm accepted. Yeah. And I, I, and so I, even among Asian kids, we had this sort of stratification of mm. that's FOB. They're mm -hmm. fresh off the boat. Yeah. We're, you know, we're, uh, you know, whether it's ABC, American born Chinese, or we're just, you know, we're like Koreans had this joke where we're like, we're off the plane, meaning we came mm. here kind of the right way. And it was, of course, these are terrible stereotypes, terrible mm. kind of hierarchies. But as teenagers, you just mm. kind of were looking for, what kept you out of the crosshairs so how do i avoid so i, I i'm seeing kids just making fun of the vietnamese kids because they're using their vietnamese names which is great but at that time it just set up for a lot of mockery whereas i'm going by sam yeah. so i could kind of blend in wow. so it wasn't until college so i ended up going to the university of wisconsin in madison for my undergrad and i got involved with a fantastic college ministry called Asian Christian Fellowship. Mm. And because the universities by and large were a little more progressive than the communities we're coming from, especially if you're in the middle of the country, this was really kind of my first uh, introduction to a robust Asian community mm. that was unapologetic and just embraced everything, but not without rejecting their Americanness. So it was Asian Americans. Wow. And so these are Taiwanese, Korean, Japanese students from all over the country. And what I realized was, oh man, the kids from New York and Cali were so far ahead of me in terms of identity because the coastal communities like SoCal, NorCal, 
New York, um, DC, they had been there much longer. Right. And those were immigrant hubs much longer. So they came in with more of a sense of us yeah. as Asian Americans. And that was refreshing to me for the yeah. first time. I'm like, oh, I can we can joke about Korean food <laughs> and people get it. Like I can talk about my parents yeah. and everyone gets the joke. And I, right. I felt like this kind of newfound excitement. So. College for me and in, in going into my grad years at Michigan was a time because I found the same kind of community at Michigan when I started FarmD. Yeah. And it was just a it was just life giving because it was a Christian community. It's still a campus ministry, but we were also unapologetically Asian in our identity. Not that we were discriminatory. I mean, we actually had like white students and even like Hispanic and African-American students who joined us, but they were like a few, I think who were just kind of what I call like cultural sojourners or, you know, curious. But for the most part, I finally found this kind of place where I wasn't just Korean because there was Koreanness around me at the church. Yeah. But these were like first generation Korean speaking Korean. Mm. And they always kind of looked at me with a little bit of suspicion as well, because yes. I was no longer first language Korean right. speaker. Right. You know, I was no longer fully Korean in my identity. But so it was that was really for me the time that was very formative, because not yeah. only was it a time of growing in my faith, it was also a time of just finally being at peace with saying, I'm third culture. I'm like, I'm not American. I'll never be fully American right. to most of America, right. but I'm, I am American and yes. I'm, I'm Korean. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. I may never be fully Korean, but that's okay. Yes. Cause now I finally found this place where the intersection was okay. Yes. And so that was really formative for me. And so that began my journey of kind of rediscovering my Koreanness. And, and just embracing it like you all of a sudden I'm in college and I would just get a craving for Korean food. Yeah. And, and, and so like when my Korean friends were like, Hey man, I'm going to make some, uh, we're going to make some ramen and we're going to eat some kimchi with it. You want to come over? And then like uh, several of us are just like, yeah, let's go over. We hang out someone's apartment. We just start making Korean food. I'm like, this is wild because when I was at home and my mom would make this stuff, <laughs> I kind of looked at it. Oh, man, can't we just go to McDonald's? Yeah. But now I'm just like, no, this tastes so good, you mm. know. So, yeah, whatever what you are sharing is very much uh, it makes total sense to me. I, yeah. I, I, I had very similar kind of resonant aspects to my journey. So, yeah, yeah. no, I love it. You know, I, I often joke, you know, I'm never Ethiopian enough for Ethiopians. And I'm never American enough for Americans. And right, so, right. you know, I used to look at that as a weakness. Now I look at it as my superpower. Yeah, uh, right. You know, it's right. so funny. You know, I'm a church planter and, you know, we never set out to be a multicultural, multi-ethnic mm -hmm. church. It just happened. You know, like everybody mm -hmm. comes and like, how'd you do it? I was like, mm -hmm. I know what it takes to build a multicultural church. That was not a goal we had for ourselves, you know, as, mm -hmm. as sexy as that is and as much as yeah. attention as that gets, I know the difficulty that comes with that. And I didn't want no parts in it, but we found ourselves in that right. predicament. And I think part of the reason why we did is because as second gen Ethiopian, we're able to reson resonate with a lot more people than I, 
I didn't know that we could or what have you. Um, th this kind of leads me to a, a question that I, I want to ask you mm -hmm. and something I've been contemplating on, thinking through, pondering. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think about our Christian faith and I think about how, you know, in American culture, we have no room to be unapologetically ethnic, like our ethnicity. Right. And yep. and I get, yep. you know, part of the reason why I started this podcast, Shaping the Culture, is because I, I do know that you know, we're supposed to conform to scripture and, and the ways of God and let that dictate, you know, you know, mm -hmm. our ethnicity, our gender, our relationships, our finance, all of that. Right. But mm -hmm. in doing, I think sometimes we, we miss out on God, what God had for us or God has for us. Ultimately, it's not to eradicate ethnicity or culture. Right. And for me, I struggled in college because as I was getting discipled, there was tension there because there are moments in time where I would feel like to follow Jesus meant to give up my ethnicity or to give up my mm. culture, to give yeah. up my love for hip hop, to mm -hmm. give up my love for art, to give up, you know, my love for um, different things that I thought made my culture beautiful. Mm -hmm. And though I do believe that we have to renounce some parts of our culture, sure. I don't think God has called us to give up all of it. I think ethnicity is beautiful and I think part of the reason why we might not be able to get along in the church is because we don't know how to celebrate how God has uniquely designed yeah. us. And so, I, you know, my question to you is how do we get back to a place where we see one another, we see ourselves the way God sees us and to mm. celebrate the difference in the church sure. and to celebrate the different ethnicities and to see that there's a place in that. And, and, and also that that can also reflect the glory of God, the beauty of God, the character of God. Yeah. Wow. I, I almost, I, man, you, you just put it on the tee for me. So thank mm. you. Yeah. Cause this, this is something that it's been a journey for me mm. and I'm, I'm very much at peace with where God has brought me on this. Mm. Uh, so I was like you early on. Um, I thought that the kind of the apex of theological thought and theological formation was in the kind of reformed European theological school. So, you know, I, I came to Dallas Seminary in the late 90s and I was just drinking everything in. And, and it was good. I, I don't want to completely just um, dismiss what we do here and demean what I learned. It was yes. incredibly valuable. Yes. Um, but what it did was I started to realize how much culture mm. was a part of my spiritual journey because mm. here I am at a school where I, I'm, I, I agree with so much of what's being taught and what's believed theologically. And yet in every class, I'm hearing about names and places and phenomena that I go, yeah. I never heard of that. Like, what? what is that conference? Who's that? And and I had white classmates who were just like, how did you not read that book? I'm like, I don't know. I grew up in a Korean church. We weren't reading that. <laughs> or we, we didn't go to those conferences, you know. So I initially saw it as a deficit. I thought, oh, man, I got a lot mm. of catching up to do. And it really took me some time and journeying to realize, no, that was because they were embracing their culture mm. as part of the framework within which they were developing spiritually and theologically. Yes. And so I realized that actually the Korean or the Asian American immigrant church 
has a lot to offer, that there are things we do and deal with that are actually valuable in terms of understanding how to be people living in the margins, which is so much of the biblical story of God's people, and how not to exercise our faith from places of power and hegemony, because that's usually not where you find God's remnant and God's people throughout the biblical story. So I felt like, oh man, that wasn't a deficit. That wasn't a negative. It was actually a wonderful exercise in how to grow and 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 thrive yes. when you're not in the greenhouse yes. and when you're not in the cultural kind of ideal condition so we as immigrants and minorities have to often be the the wildflowers that can grow in the cracks in the concrete and that's something to offer but here's really yes. where i want to kind of answer your question it is incredibly clear to me now that The biblical story has never Mm. been about a homogeneous Mm. humanity. Mm. So a couple things. One, I often hear this misrepresented. Babel was not the point Mm. at which ethnicities, nations, and cultures were born. Mm. If you actually read Genesis 6 through 11 carefully, the primordial history actually gives plenty of clear signals that the evolution of these nation, national, cultural, and ethnic identities was well underway. Mm. And it was never part of a curse. Mm. It was simply kind of how humanity was fulfilling the original mandate to fill the earth and mu- to multiply and fill the earth. Yeah. So part of multiplication included multiplication in tongues, tribes, and peoples. Yeah. Um, Babel was a rebellion. And so the curse was against humanity's rebellious spirit, Mm. not humanity's diversity. Mm. And so that's one myth I want to fully just dispel. Number two, so plenty of people have already done this, but the curse of ham stuff is a completely misread, complete misreading. So I'm just going to say we don't even need to go there. Um, (laughs) Let me put this out there. We have done a great injustice in terms of like biblical ethnography Mm. because we have completely ignored the overwhelming evidence for the presence and the importance of african people groups in the biblical story and so the kushites were an african people group absolutely they are very much in the story here's what happened though a lot of times like uh European and and Western scholars would take the Kushites and they would be very vague about the labeling of them because even in the Bible, they're referred in different ways. So instead of us having this really healthy, strong sense of they were also, so we often think of the Old Testament world as primarily Egypt to the south um, and then the Mesopotamians to the east. And then for a short time, the uh, the nation of Hadi, the Hittites to the north. Uh, but we always think in terms of these great powers. And that's absolutely true, because yeah. in terms of like world history, yeah. um, the, the nations that have left us the greatest deposit yeah. of evidence and archaeological, anthropological are the Egyptians, the Mesopotamians, the Hittites, And then, of course, the sea peoples who were Mediterranean, most likely. Here's what's there. 
the Kushites are actually considered a, a, a just as big an influence as these other nations, yeah. but because of terminology and because of European bias, we don't know that. Mm -hmm. So there are so many times where in the biblical story, these African peoples are involved in very essential and critical ways. We just don't think of it that way. And that's that gets to the, of course, the white Jesus myth. We just see all of biblical characters as largely light-skinned Europeans, or if you're at least somewhat more informed, you see them as only light-skinned Middle Eastern people. And there's this total erasure of the sub-Saharan African civilizations who were just as ancient and had so many contributions but just aren't recognized. Yeah. So there's that. Yes. And finally, I'm just going to leave you with this. Yeah. I believe that when you look at the redemption arc, that the end of the redemption arc as seen in Revelation is kind of the parallel mirror held up to Genesis. And so this is what happens after God finally brings things back to where they ought to be. Yeah. And I can't tell you how important it is that in Revelation, you have like evidence upon evidence of what redemption was meant to address. Mm. Because the final, the new heaven and the new earths, recreation, you have in that you have a sense of shalom, you have the trees of life. So orchards of these trees with healing in their leaves for yes. all the nations. Yes. So here's what is important. That image of redeemed kingdom millennia, like not millennia, but like eternity is diverse, mm. meaning the diversity of humanity was never mm. meant to be fixed and redeemed by going to homogeneity. Mm. And so this is doxological. Mm. So I'll give you I'll give you a very concrete example of this. Yes. Uh, my family and I spent some time living in Russia on missions. And so part of that journey was learning the Russian language and learning about the Russian culture. Yeah. I am I know Korean and have a, an intimate familiarity with the culture even if I'm not what I would consider a native Korean. Yeah. And what I've learned through this and also through my just work as a, uh, a biblical studies, you know, uh, PhD is linguistics and language is such a big part of what I do for a living. Yeah. And what I'm realizing is I love how different cultures and languages are better at expressing certain human experiences, emotions and thoughts than others. Mm. And here's what I mean by that. Mm. You will come across this and you may have examples of this you can share yeah. where there is sometimes where I'm trying to explain something to my uh, white friend and I'm thinking, oh, if he only knew this Korean expression, mm. I could just share that with him and he would know what I'm talking yes, about. Yes. But because he doesn't know that Korean word or expression, I've got to kind of do a roundabout explanation in English. Yes. Same thing with Russian. I, As I was learning Russian, I go, oh, it's an incredibly expressive language. And there are times where I go, oh, this Russian word is perfect. I wish we had an English word, but we don't. And then and it works the other way. There are English expressions that I'm like, gosh, if the Russian people <laughs> could just have this expression, they would understand what I'm saying. Yeah. Here's my point. If you remove any of the families of the earth from that final multitude that's mentioned in Revelation, what you lose 
is the fully faceted, fully orbed ability to express human mm. praise mm. to God in eternity. Wow. And so you remove any of those families wow. and now you are at a deficit mm. and now you are robbing God of glory of wow. which he is absolutely worthy. So the diversity of cultures, colors and languages is a feature, not a bug. And it should be central or at least at near the core of how we think of our doxology. Wow, that is beautiful. <laughs> that is beautiful. I have so many follow up questions to that. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I mentioned earlier my love for hip hop. You've talked mm -hmm. about your love for hip hop growing up. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I remember the first Sunday we launched our church. You know, we're thinking through, you know, pre-service playlists, you know, as people mm -hmm. are walking in, socializing, grabbing coffee. What's the music? And because I love hip hop, I was like, we're going to play Christian <laughs> hip hop. <laughs> That's what we're going to play. And I had some church planters that were friends of mine coming to support and visit, you know, the first day mm -hmm. is a big day, launch Sunday. And after the service, they pulled me aside, man, that was beautiful. That's amazing. We're so happy for you. We're, we're, we're excited to see what God does um, through your church. And they're like, but we, we just have a concern that we want to run by you. And we're, I was like, yeah, what's up? What, what can we do better? And they said, you know, I don't know if it's a good idea to play Christian hip hop before service. Mm. And I said, why is that? And they said, well, we've done some studies. We've done some work. And if you play hip hop before service, it will turn away people. It will only attract a very small demographic. And if you want to cast your net wide, you should play mm. some CCM. And that really rocked me. And I remember going back to our team and really praying through and thinking through, do we remove Christian hip hop from our playlist, our pre-service playlist? You know, long story short, we decided to keep it. And, mm -hmm. you know, we're like, you know what, this is who we are. And if, if yeah. people are not drawn to this, then they're not meant to be here, right? We'll just take that loss, but we refuse to compromise this expression mm -hmm. of worship because it's true to us and it's served us in our spiritual formation. And mm -hmm. so as you're talking, I'm hearing that, you know, there are certain languages, there are certain expressions and sayings that, mm -hmm. you know, I think hip hop is beautiful because it there, I don't know another genre that can be that in your face. And sometimes mm -hmm. you need to talk about God like that, you know, like a CCM song will not boast about God the way hip hop will, you know, sure. and, uh, I guess my, my, my follow-up question to everything you're sharing and as I'm processing my own experiences, what is it going to take for us to acknowledge that diversity is actually um, our friend and that diversity will expand our love for God and it will show us a, a, you know, more, more of who God is and then it will glorify mm -hmm. God more. Like, I, I don't mm -hmm. know if we have that picture of mm -hmm. diversity i think diversity i mean now it's a it's a hot it's a hot yep. uh, yeah topic it's it's you know, political it's not it's a political term now it's a yeah. political term but what what do we need to do to get back to redeeming the beauty of diversity and the need for mm -hmm. it yeah that's a great question so i i think there's two layers that i'm going to address that one is there is a kind of a there let me just begin by saying the, the, the short answer to your question is power. Mm. Ultimately, one of the reasons diversity is difficult to 
um, practice, embrace, process, especially for majority culture Christians, is because um, this is going to sound super stereotypical. I'm yeah, I'm going to come across as somebody who is echoing or parroting some talking points, but I, I think this is the best way to put it. It's decentering, mm. and so for those who have been who have had so much cultural, socio-political hegemony, mm. it is somewhat disorienting to think that maybe we're one among many rather than first among equals. Mm. So there has always been this sort of lip service version of multicultural embrace in a lot of evangelical circles where, oh, we love Revelation 7 and 9. We love this vision of all these tribes, tongues, and nations. But the subtext is, but, but, you know, we, we're still the, we're still the gatekeepers. Mm. We're still the ones who are, who have guardianship over the true deposit of faith. Mm. So you got to make sure we don't lose that. And what that does is, is it's, it's an incredible distort, incredibly distorted understanding of Christian history, Mm. um, especially American Christian history. Um, Mary Beth Swetnam's work, Doctrine and Race, was incredibly helpful for me in seeing just inc- how amazing the black church was during the time from the end of slavery to the First World War, because at that time in American Christianity, you were seeing this huge schism between the mainline neoliberals, liberals, mm-hmm. and the fundamentalists. Mm-hmm. And in that, on the margins was the black church saying, oh, you can keep doctrine and you can still be active in pursuing social reform and justice. Right. And because they were on the margins, they were completely kind of dismissed by both sides of that. Mm-hmm. And But that's what I think is the vision that um, true diversity would foster is we really can learn from one another and there really is no one who should have any kind of hegemony. Yeah. I think that's number one, that's just what's hard for a lot of white Christian um, institutions and um, organizations. It takes incredibly hard work to really um, embrace that kind of vision and, and kind of put aside your, your own hierarchical position right. and actually do that. Um, so I would say it has to be a move of the spirit. Mm-hmm. I just, in, in my kind of realistic view of the landscape, I don't wow. know how much seminars and lectures and books are going to do at this point. Um, <clears throat> first of all, let me say there are white leaders and, and scholars who do get it. Yes. And I'm, I'm thankful to see them because they're out there and they're trying, they're, they're kind of like prophetic voices, yeah. but it's because the spirit's moving in certain ways in their context. Um, but short of that, um, the second thing I would say is we underestimate the power of mammon as an mm. evil force. Mm. It's a principality. I'm convinced it's a, it's one of the strongest strongholds in the current creational order wow. because so much of racism is actually rooted in mammon worship. Mm. Um, so, uh, when I teach on uh, kind of uh, original sin and what 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 was happening in Gen- Genesis one through three, yeah. one of the points I try and make to our students is 
The reason that in Exodus and Deuteronomy, you actually have human trafficking and, and chattel slavery condemned as first order sins deserving of death is because slavery is a form, a very specific form of human rebellion against God. Because when God institutes the curse after the fall, he is basically saying that part of your curse is to work the soil mm -hmm. and to live by the sweat of your brow. Slavery is man's way of saying, shaking our fist at God and saying, I'm going to work. I'm not wow. going to work. And I'm going to prosper by the sweat of another's wow. brow. It's theft and it's based in economy. It's a way to prosper economically wow. by the sweat of another. Wow. And so it's a deep form of rebellion and it's a deep sin, which is why uh, when Joseph is reconciling with his brothers, if you go back and read that carefully, he's not just kind of putting on a show of how smart he is or how powerful he is. He is actually rightfully concerned and wants to know, have you guys truly repented? Have you truly changed? That's what he was testing. Yes. He was not testing them because he wanted to lord power over them. Yes. He wanted to know, hey, I want to reconcile with all of you. But what you guys did to me was worthy of death, at mm -hmm. least according to, you know, what would be later given in the Torah. Yeah. So what Joseph saw that changed his heart for the better or not change his heart, but led to reconciliation was when Judah said, I will give my life for Benjamin's. Mm. And that's when Joseph realized, okay, you are not the same Judah who put me in that pit. Mm. And so we can reconcile. Mm. So, so I, I say all this because racism, mm. if we don't understand it, it with its economic dimension, we misunderstand it. This is where a lot of people, by the way, struggle to understand systemic racism. It's because they want to keep seeing racism as an animus and a personal sin. It's me using the N-word. It's me saying ugly stereotypical things about Mexican people and Korean people and black people. That's not that's that's a form of racism, I guess, or it's an expression of racism. But racism is when we build society to benefit some and exclude others. Wow. And when you do that, yes. you don't have to have personal animus to see harm done. I, I can build a machine that is designed to kill ants. And I may be long dead and gone, but if that machine's still operating, it'll keep killing ants. Yeah. And so if you keep building an environment to harm some and benefit others, then it will keep doing so even after the, the creators of that um, mechanism are long gone. Mm. But if people keep maintaining that machine, then there's a complicity there. And that's, I think, the hardest thing for people in power to understand. And, and, and it's important to see the economic piece to that puzzle. It's not born of just this wanton hatred. Like we didn't wake up one morning to say, you know what? The earth would be better off if we just made it miserable for all dark-skinned people. Yeah. No, it really goes back. If you look at the threads and history of doctrine of discovery and the history of colonialism, it was ultimately about prosperity 
by the sweat of someone else's brow. So let's create a society where we have license and validation to say, well, these people were born for this. Right. And we were born to rule. So, um, wow. That is powerful insight. Thank you for sharing that. I have never heard it put that way. And I am, I've got a lot to chew on after this conversation. So thank you. Um, <laughs> and, and the good thing is like, um, there are some folks who are now really doing good work mm. on the economic aspects yes. of racism. Um, Jonathan Tran is one of them and Malcolm Foley is another. They're, they're talking about this at a much more scholarly level. So if you want to get in on that, oh, yes. those are a couple guys who are absolutely doing needed work and mm. helping say, oh, yeah, racism's bad. Here's why. And they're, they're now they're, they're kind of delving into this aspect of it. So, yeah, it's helpful. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I'll definitely look into that. You know, I can easily talk to you for another hour. No problem. <laughs> uh, but I want to respect your time, you know, landing sure. the plane here. Yeah. You know, we've talked about how diversity glorifies God and how, you know, when we don't celebrate one another, you know, what it is that we're actually doing to one another and the harm that's caused there and the deep rooted sin. I love how you brought it back to Genesis and, you know, we don't want to toil. And so we want to pro profit off mm -hmm. of somebody else's sweat mm -hmm. of the brow. That, that's such that's so good. Um yeah, we talked about how diversity glorifies God. Landing the plane here, can you give us, you know, because I think everything that glorifies God is good for human flourishing and good for our soul. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so maybe maybe yeah. two or three things, maybe your top yeah. five, whatever, however you led. Um, what are some of the benefits and what are some of the good things that come with, you know, being diverse and coming together and celebrating mm -hmm. one another and seeing the good in one another and, and acknowledging that we all have a part to play in reflecting the glory mm -hmm. and the goodness of God. Okay. Let me just start by saying, you just said it like one mm. of the most powerful apologetics for a non colorblind um, embrace of the multi ethnic, cultural, national, lingual nature mm. of humanity is because we all benefit when we embrace it. And here's why, because now we're getting a fuller picture of God. Yeah. So I think of humanity right now as um, one thing, I think that the way a lot of people misunderstand uh, the teachings on total depravity, we often think of meaning we're all just the worst, we're worms, we're, we're horrible. I, I think I learned this way back when I was in seminary the first time, and I, I still hold on to this today. It's not that the Imago Dei was um, erased, it was defaced by the fall. Mm. So we're like broken mirrors. We're not like, there's not an elimination of the reflection. Yeah. It's just, it's cracked. And, or as Paul says, we see in a mirror dimly. Right. Um, and so we're not yet where we're face to face. And I long for that day with everyone. Yeah. But until then, it's always gonna be dim and cracked, yeah. but it's not erased. And so the more we can grab, so if I'm looking at a puzzle that's shattered, um, I will get a better picture of what that puzzle is showing you, the more pieces I have. So colorblindness erases all the pieces. Uh, we just have some pieces 
and you're looking at a puzzle you can't solve because too much is missing from it because it's largely that one hegemonic culture. So the more cultures we bring in, and the more cultures we add to the our daily experiences, our daily lived fellowship, worship, theological education, spiritual formation, the more we will see God in clarity. Because my Ethiopian friends will be able to share things with me from their culture that I would have missed as Korean or American. My friends from the global south, my friends from Eastern Europe, my friends from Asia, South Asia, they're all going to bring these wonderfully um, insightful aspects to how we do theology, right. and we're richer for it. Yes. And so that would be one argument I would I make it. is that you're impoverishing your own spiritual experience and theological formation by not being in fellowship with the wider um, whole body of Christ. Um, That's right. And then the other thing I want to say is I'm going to make a more personal kind of argument. I just think, um, so this is going to be a little bit, uh, might be a little bit controversial to some, but I, I truly believe that one of the reasons some people really want to get into cultural appropriation is actually because they do see something of great value in that other culture. Wow. Now, they get into some really, really out-of-pocket, out-of-bounds things when they go too far because there's a line at which cultural appropriation becomes mockery or stereotyping and things like that. So it can be demeaning. And so I'm absolutely not saying I'm for cultural appropriation. I'm saying the impulse for that is speaking to something in us where we do recognize it. And this is why when Korean youth are fascinated with hip hop, I, I see that overall as a healthy thing. It's because they're coming out of a culture and encountering another one who has brought some kind of experience that is just incredibly evocative and compelling and, and just, uh, it's almost spiritual. So they want to experience that. And so I think that the vision of multicultural, multinational kingdom is that one day we're finally going to be able to enjoy every culture without fear of appropriation. That's and we're good. finally going to go, oh, this is why God created our tongues this way, <laughs> because there are flavors that my people don't get. <laughs> and I need to be able to eat all these. So. It, all joking aside, I, I think that the common meal across cultural lines is still one of the best yes. ways to just kind of open the door yes. to better relationships across cultures. And and it's, it has its limits. So I'm not going to reduce cultural engagement to just, yes. oh, go eat some Indian food or injera bread, you know, yeah. like I'm, I'm. But what I am saying, though, is it has increased Korean soft power immensely in the last 20 years that Korean food has become so widespread and ubiquitous. Yeah. Um, and that opens the door for then people who may have been completely resistant to my culture to say, all right, your food's really good. What else is there? Mm. Um, so same with music, same with dress. So yeah. I really believe that multiculturalism allows us to experience the fullness mm -hmm. of human creativity and humanity's beauty 
in ways that we never would if we're monocultural. Mm -hmm. So um, that's my other apologetic is there's a reason I love hip hop music. It's not because I'm African-American, but it's yeah. because it evokes something in me that I go, this expresses it in a way that no other genre does. So I'm gonna listen to this. Or I, I, I wanna, I, I'm, I love that people are watching Korean dramas yeah. because in doing so, they're getting this like glimpse into the Korean psyche. Yeah. And now if I have a friend who's not Korean, but watches a lot of Korean dramas, I can actually have a better conversation with that friend about yeah. the concept of Korean cultural communal sorrow. Right. And and something that they may not have gotten without that kind of cultural mm. kind of taste. So that would be my other apologetic is the church is just impoverishing itself wow. when we do not just really appreciate the, the multitude of expressions and forms of expression that all the different cultures bring mm. to the table. Yeah, powerful. That's good stuff, man. That's good stuff. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. If if nobody well, else got yeah. anything out of it, I got a whole ton of things. And so um, we, I thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, your perspective. Um, I'm mm -hmm. better for it. And so thank you for blessing this podcast with with uh, the the wisdom that God has entrusted you with. And um, just, thank you for just inviting me on. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's like uh, you don't know who I am. It's kind of risky. So I appreciate that you reached out. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've seen enough tweets to know this. If I get him on the <laughs> podcast, it's going to be a dangerous conversation. And uh, it sure was. So, yeah, no, thank you for for those who want to continue following you, maybe get more from you. Uh, where, where can they find you? Uh, social media? What are your handles? Sure. I, I really only do Twitter at this time. I'm just I'm Gen X. I'm not <laughs> I don't I don't I don't have the, the flexibility and the muscles to just do Instagram and TikTok, but if you want to follow me on Twitter, it is at Sam Ob Obi One W O N. So I am a huge Star Wars nerd. So ever since I was uh, back in college, some of my friends started calling me Obi Wan because of my last name, and I'm like, I'm good with that. Let's roll yeah. with it. So Sam Obi One uh, W O N. If you want to follow me there, um, but yeah, um, that's probably about all I do these days. Yeah. yeah. No, that's awesome. Twitter, Twitter is actually my favorite social media platform. So um, mm -hmm. I'm glad that you're on there. Glad that we were able to cross paths and have this conversation yeah. all together. And so, well, yeah, I hope it sticks around. But I, I also know that if it does go up in flames, I, I don't know that I'll go anywhere else. But I do. I've really enjoyed the engagement it's brought me. I've really loved it. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I know a couple months ago, we were all freaking out. We didn't know. If yep. Twitter was coming yep. to an end or not, but uh, we're still here. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, thank you for everything. And to our listeners and audience, um, we hope that this blessed you, encouraged you, um, that it stirred your soul, stirred you up in such a way that would mm -hmm. um, lead you towards a path that God ultimately has for all of us. Um, until next time, family, peace and grace. Mm -hmm.